0: All right, we're in Mark chapter 10 this morning, Mark chapter 10, and uh, we are kind of going to be leading up to uh, the Resurrection Sunday in a couple weeks. You see on the screen behind me uh, the the graphic there, the road to the cross, and that's kind of where we are traveling, and I was thinking about what I wanted to to bring this morning in terms of what scripture we were going to plant ourselves in together for our time, and uh, the Lord just clearly steered me. toward Mark chapter 10, uh, because if you look in, in Mark chapter 11, is when they begin to draw near to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. And so this, this section that we're going to study today is what takes place just prior to them entering into Jerusalem um, with Jesus' one-way ticket in hand, if you will. So Mark chapter 10, 46 through 52, and the title of my sermon is The Blind Leading the Blind. How many of you have heard that phrase before? The blind leading the blind. So we're going to be talking about Jesus and blind Bartimaeus, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. Well, there was a missionary lady. There was a missionary lady. She was overseas by herself, and she was uh, doing the work of of the Lord alone, and it was discouraging and difficult, and she was kind of ready to to take a break and and maybe step out of the scene she was in. She was sitting in her second-story window, One day at her apartment when someone comes with a letter from home and they hand her that letter. And of course seeing the handwriting she was familiar with stirred her heart, encouraged her, lifted her countenance. And uh, she began to open the letter and she opens it up and unfolds the letter and a crisp brand new $10 bill falls out onto her lap. Now that may not sound like a lot to us but maybe overseas that does uh, a little bit more. But this $10 bill falls out, and she's pleasantly surprised. She's just tickle pink, as we say around here. And uh, she begins to read the letter. As she's reading it, though, sitting in her second story window, she notices some movement down below uh, on the street. And so she tries to ignore it and go on reading her letter. Uh, but her eyes keep glancing downward to this man who's standing across the street, leaning up against the building. He's kind of a shabbily dressed man, he's a stranger, she's never seen him. Uh, on that street before, as long as she had lived there. And she went on trying to finish reading the letter, but she could not get the man off her mind. And she thought to herself, you know, maybe this man is in greater financial stress and duress than I am. And so she took the $10 bill, put it back in the envelope, sealed it up, and on the front of the envelope, she quickly scribbled two words, Don't despair. Don't despair. So she goes to the window and she calls the man, Hey, come here, come here. So he looks up at her kind of funny, and he crosses the street. And she takes the envelope, and she tosses it out of her second-story window. And it kind of drifts lazily down to the ground. Stranger bends over. He picks it up. He opens it, and he begins to, to read the letter. And he notices on the outside what it said. Don't despair. Hmm. Thought, and he's kind of puzzled over that. But he finds the $10, and he waves to the lady, thank you, thank you. And he goes on his way. Well, she didn't think anything more about it the next day she's getting ready to leave and she hears this so she goes to the door and she gets to the door she finds that same shabbily dressed man wearing the same things that he was wearing yesterday standing at her door and he's smiling real big and he extends his hand out towards her and she looks into his hand and there in his hand is a wad of cash just a wad of cash a bunch of bills rolled up and she asked him she said what in the world is that for And he said, that's the 60 bucks you won, lady. Don't despair, paid five to one. (laughs) She had no idea that she was paying into her own benefit the next day. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a good story, right? But help and hope come in many different ways. A lot of times help and hope come to us in ways that we never would have expected. If we'd have sat down and wrote out a game plan or a strategy, it wouldn't have happened that way. But God sends help and hope to us in different ways in different times. Not always like we think. But the Scriptures promise us, go check this out. Nahum 1.7 tells us that the Lord knows and He cares for those that trust in Him. When I go to the hospital, a lot of times I take a little promise book and in that book is Nahum 1.7. The Lord knows and He cares for those who trust in Him. That's a comforting verse for me in times when I am anxious and in distress. This morning, as we look at Mark chapter 10, I want you to see one thing. If you walk out of here with one thing kind of rolled up like those bills and stuffed in your pocket, I want it to be this, that Jesus identifies with us in our suffering. Jesus identifies with us in our suffering even when he was going through his own he stops to identify with this man blind Bartimaeus begging in the dust and so as we look at the context around this passage we see this is just a week or so before Jesus has, has his one way ticket in hand and he's entering into Jerusalem for the last time in his earthly life and in the middle of this busy crowd this parade if you will Picture the Mountain Glory Festival and everything on Main Street. And all these people are following Jesus. He stops to identify with a blind beggar who needed his touch. So this is a story. I'm not going to break it up into 17 points in a poem. I'm going to tell it. as a story, right? We love stories. I sat here and watched all these kids. Y'all couldn't see them probably. And Brenda's telling this story, you know, just kind of in snapshots. And the kids are just wrapped with attention. We love a good story, and Jesus understood that better than anyone. He was a master storyteller. So we're just going to read, and I'll stop and comment, but we're going to walk through that together. So verse 46, will begin in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, The son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. Now this story takes place in the New Jericho. There's two Jerichos. The old one, you remember, was they marched around, they blew the trumpets, everything fell down, everything's in ruins. This is in the New Jericho, which is about 18 miles outside of Jerusalem. Verse 46 tells us Jesus is passing through Jericho here, and he's on his way to Jerusalem for what we know now is the last time in his life. And so, when he went on Expedia.com to book his uh, travel itinerary, uh, he clicked a one-way ticket. Because he was going there to suffer, he was going there to die, and he knew it. Now, when we study the cross, when we study the death of Jesus, uh, I think sometimes we are in error when we focus only on the physical agony that Jesus went through. We've never seen anyone die on a cross here, I would assume. But see, this happened all the time. You were entering into a city and the Romans would have a display of people on one of these things that looked similar to this, maybe even in the shape of a T. And they would be criminals that were being prosecuted for their crimes. And they would hang there on these crosses as people came by entering into the city. And the Romans were sending a clear message of, you don't hassle with us. You don't mess with us. You cross the line. Here's what's going to happen to you. And Jesus knew he was going to one of those. He had already said what kind of death he was going to die. predicted it. He talked about it. He knew he was going there to die. But I think it's more than just the physical nature. Jesus knew he was going to be the, here's the theological word, the propitiation. You say, what does that mean? The sacrifice that pleased God and took away his anger against mankind. Jesus was going to be the basin, if you will, where all of God's anger and fury was poured out onto, into this basin, and Jesus was going to absorb it. And he knew that was going to do something to his relationship with his Father. That was the spiritual agony and weight that Jesus felt as he approached Jerusalem. You say, why are you telling us all this? When you have something on your mind, let's say you got to go down to the store and you got to get a gallon of milk and a loaf of bread and some jelly beans because it's right here at Easter and they put out all the best jelly beans at Easter time. Let's say you're going to the store and you've got to pick up those few items and somebody stops to talk to you, if you don't put it on a notepad on your phone or write it down on a post-it note, what happens? You forget the milk, you forget the bread, but you remember the jelly beans, Right? You remember the things you want, you forget the things you need. When something distracts us from what we're doing, we get aggravated. We don't want anyone to stop and talk to us when we're on an errand to go find the jelly beans. Right, kids? Right? Kids, amen? Okay, there we go. All right. That was mine. All right. Yeah. But see, Jesus here is on the way to bear the sins of the world spiritually, and yes, he's going to have nails driven through his wrists and his feet and be lashed and all the things that goes along with crucifixions that he's seen for 33 years. He understands this. He knows what he's going toward, but no one else around him has a clue. His closest friends don't know it. They don't sense it. They don't see it. Jesus feels it. Okay, I'm trying to help you understand what he's feeling as he's approaching this blind beggar who needs him to stop, desperately needs him to stop and lay his hand on him and say a word of blessing to him and change his life. How easy is it when you're thinking about the silly, trite stuff like the jelly beans to pass by the person who's hurting and needs a helping, encouraging touch? Jesus was about to go carry more than anyone in this room combined can carry. And he stops to identify with this blind beggar in the dust. Have I whet your appetite for this? Are you ready to walk into this? I mean, I'm hungry for this thing. You ready? Let's do this. So they go in there, and there's this man named Bartimaeus. Now, interesting, why would Mark tell us his name? Mark does not include, a lot of times, as much detail as Luke or people like that. Mark is kind of like a comic book, in my mind. And here's what I mean. I'm not not putting it down, what I'm saying. You read a comic book, you don't get a lot of details. You only get the action. So-and-so, punch so-and-so. Remember Batman? Bam, pow, remember all that? Adam West? I remember. I watched it. A comic book gives you the action. Mark gives us the action. But interestingly, Mark stops here to tell us that this man's name was. Now, did he have a name tag that said, hello, my name is? No, not at all. Why is he telling us this? When you read your Bibles and you come across a little detail, why did the Holy Spirit put that there? Here's why I think he put it there. The name Bartimaeus means son of, that's the bar, son of Timaeus. Remember, his dad's name is Timaeus. Bar Timaeus means son of honor, son of honor. So here's a blind man begging in the dust, daily humiliated because of his condition and people pass him by, and what's his name? Son of honor. Not a lot of honor in that position, that place in life. I read recently where somebody walked through present-day Jericho. I'm talking about right now. Walked through present-day Jericho and counted all of the people that they could possibly count. Men that were blind or had some kind of defect with their vision. You know how many existed in present-day Jericho? About half of the male population. That's today. And we can offer them help. What was going on in Jesus' day? Picture the scene. Beggars lining the streets, sitting on their cloaks, sitting on their mat, waiting for somebody to come by and reach in there and find a couple of coins and toss it on their mat. And they grope for it and they put it in their pocket. And they give it to a family member that goes and buys them bread. This is a humiliating scene. But there's another fascinating irony we can't miss in this passage. In Scripture, blindness often pointed to, Brenda touched on it, often pointed to, and ignorance of spiritual things now this guy's physically blind, but Jesus, do you remember? He calls out the Pharisees and he calls them something interesting. He says, "You guys are blind guides. you are blind guides. He wasn't talking about their physical sight. he was talking about their spiritual sight. they couldn't see God for who He was because the God of that world of this world had blinded their eyes from seeing Jesus as. The Messiah. But interestingly, in this passage, catch the irony. I love the reversals in the scripture. Catch the irony. It was the blind man that had the sharpest spiritual sight in the crowd. Everybody else is walking with Jesus. Hey, can we have your autograph? Can you sign my robe? Hey, can I have your sandal? And this blind guy in the dust sees Jesus for who he really is. Sounds like 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chose what is foolish and weak and low to despise the shame of the wisdom, strength, and the pride of this world. Verse 47. And when he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus. Jesus. Son of David. God, shh. I'm trying to get his attention. No. Jesus. Jesus, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. The Greek word here indicates urgency and fear. And a sense of like, this is my one shot. I can't miss it. He's crying out to Jesus. And what did the crowds do? Many rebuked him. Shh. Be quiet, be quiet. But he cried out all the more. So they're trying to shut him up. Maybe they're putting their hand over his mouth and he's swatting them away and he's just, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And over and over and over, he keeps saying this and he's embarrassing the people around him. And all the people that lived in Jericho are like, shh, this is just one time with us. Don't ruin it. And he keeps on calling out. Right now in my home. One of the things we're working on is saying things one time and waiting. (laughs) I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) Saying things one time and waiting. I have a two-year-old. She's in the nursery right now. And she wakes up before anybody in the house. Anybody. Daddy, 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 I want some juice. I want some juice. I want some juice. Daddy, daddy. I mean, okay, I heard you the sixth time. You don't need to keep saying it. Over and over and over. I say, say it one time and wait. That's not what's going on here. The Greek verb gives the idea that Bartimaeus was saying it over and over and over because he was desperate. Warren Wiersbe says, desperate people do not permit the crowd to keep them from Jesus. There might be someone desperate in here this morning. We look nice in our shirts that we sometimes iron, don't we? We look nice with our makeup, but who in this room this morning, if I stopped and gave an altar call right now and said, come receive Jesus as your Savior, would say, hey, stop it, I'm coming down right now. This guy wasn't waiting for an invitation. There wasn't going to be seven stanzas of just as I am and somebody up front working a crowd. He was calling out and ready to come down front now, not to an altar, to the Lamb. He was desperate. Also the verb tells us this. When he called out and said, heal me, heal me. He was saying now. Like heal me right now. Not wait five minutes or wait five days or when you pass through another time. He was saying now and you wait to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How can he talk to Jesus like that? How do you talk to the Messiah that way? How do you talk to God in flesh and tell him what to do right now? Sounds presumptuous. I don't think it was presumption at all. I think he was so convinced in his heart that this guy, Jesus, could change his forever. And I'm not talking about just his sight. He knew this guy, Jesus, someone with a capital S was here that could change his life because he saw Jesus the clearest out of everyone. And the closer Jesus came, you know what happened? He didn't get quieter. The closer he came, he got louder and more desperate and more urgent. You know why? Because he realized, this train's going to pass me by if I don't stop it. So he's going to do whatever he's got to do to stop Jesus. His brokenness and desperation accelerated as Jesus came near. Martin Luther says this. Martin Luther says, God works by contraries. So that a man feels himself to be lost at the very moment that he's being saved. You cannot feel like you're okay and call out to God to save you. It don't work that way. If you're going down a river about to go over a waterfall and you're at the very edge, before what kind of panic are you going to have? Are you going to wave at the guy with the rope and say, I'm good, I don't need you, I'm good, I'm fine, I got this. There's a barrel around here somewhere. No, that panic and that fear and that desperation is going to accelerate because you know I'm going over the cliff and Martin Luther captured it. In this moment, was this beggar proud? Was he puffed up? Was he arrogant? Was he citing his list of references? No, probably more humble than he'd ever been in his life. Verse 48, the crowds are, shh, shut up, this is embarrassing. embarrassing. A blind, dirty beggar hassling Jesus this way. But we've seen this before. Chapter 10. People are bringing their children to to Jesus and what are the disciples doing? Stop, wait a minute, where's your your credentials? No, they're running interference for the Savior while they're trying to bring their kids to Jesus to be blessed. We don't have time for rugrats, little snotty-nosed juice mongers. We don't have time for you. And what did Jesus do? He didn't rebuke the snotty-nosed, rugrat juice-mongers. He rebuked the adults who should have known better from stopping people from coming to Jesus. Verse 49, I love Jesus' response. Jesus stops and he says to the crowd, he says to the crowd, you call him, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And so Jesus shifts the mob mentality. The mob mentality was against Bartimaeus. To speak in basketball terms, because we're in basketball season, or at least my team's still in basketball season. Sorry. The momentum was going the wrong way. It was going the wrong way for Bartimaeus, and Jesus stops it. He hits stop on the momentum, he shifts it, and then hits play again. And he's going to use the mob mentality to help this guy out, and no one sees it. I mean, how brilliant. How, how, how discerning, how calculating, how God in the mind and God in the flesh do you have to be to stop a crowd this size and turn it around and take them from jeering to cheering. That's brilliant. I can't do that. You can't do that. Who is this guy that is in control of this crowd? It's one of my favorite things about Jesus. He never lets the crowds pressure him to do the wrong thing. They come to him and they say, but we want juice. And he says, I'm going to give you milk, the pure milk of the word. And so he's using this mob mentality now for him and for Bartimaeus. So Jesus stops the crowd in its tracks to help this guy. What got his attention? I think three quick things. The urgency in his voice. The accuracy of who he called Jesus out to be. And the humility in his heart. You say, accuracy? He calls him the son of David. He calls him the son of David. He says, you're the one that comes through the line of kings in the Old Testament. How did he see this? Who told this man this? Why did the crowds not catch this? Calls him the Messiah. And then the humility, he says, have what? Mercy. How many of you like mercy? You blow it. You get it wrong. You mess everything up. And someone comes to you and offers you mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2 says. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says this. He has shown you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do justly, to love what? Mercy and to walk how? Humbly. Do you see the mercy? Do you see the humility? He's not even walking with God. He's sitting in the dust with God and God's about to stop in the flesh, in the dust with him. Verse 50. And he throws off his cloak and he springs up and he came to Jesus. Now, you ever tried to walk through the house in the middle of the night? And the night light went out that night and you didn't know it. And you go stumbling down the hall and you're tripping over things. And you're stubbing your toe. And you're frustrated. And you're blaming somebody else in the house. This guy's blind as a bat. Throws off his cloak. Jumps up from the dust. And takes off running towards this man, the son of David. Jesus says to him, In verse 50, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, which means master, teacher, let me recover my sight. What do you want me to do for you? You want a meal card? You want to come to my house and watch the game? Like, why is Jesus asking this question? I think Jesus is stacking the deck against himself. He's asking a question that's going to set it up so that the only obvious answer is, you have to heal me of my blindness. Jesus knows it. Remember 1 Kings 18, Elijah on, the mount, on Mount Carmel? He gives those guys, he says, you guys have the ball first, go ahead. So they dance around and they cut themselves and they chant and they sing. And Elijah makes fun of them all morning long. And then finally when it's his turn, what does he do? He takes the bowl or whatever he's got prepared and he dumps water on this thing that he's going to call down fire from heaven. What does water do to fire? I've never been in a fire department, but I think i got a pretty good guess. He's stacking the deck against himself because he's got that much faith in God. And that's what's going on here. He knows this guy's simple declaration of his faith is going to set the stage. So Bartimaeus throws his cloak off, jumps up from his seat in the dust, and I love this. Mark gives us another detail in verse 50. He throws off his cloak. Why would Mark tell us that he threw off his cloak? Because his cloak was like Linus's little blue security blanket. You guys remember the Charlie Brown Christmas special? When Linus recites the good news of Jesus' birth, he gets to the part where he says, Fear not. Fear not. Ever notice what Linus did? When he says, fear not, watch this. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Stop it right there. And suddenly... Did you guys see? Where was his little security blanket? On the floor. Why? Because the Messiah was here. There was nothing else to fear anymore. He could let go of that thing and throw that down because he did not need a security blanket to carry him along and make everything okay. You know what Bartimaeus does here? When Jesus comes near, he drops his little security blanket, he jumps up from the dust, and he makes his way to Jesus. He knows he's never going to need it again because... Jesus is here. That's faith. So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus get out his pen and paper and write him a prescription? Go down to the pharmacy and take this drug. Or All he does is speak. Go your way, he says. Your faith. Not the amount of his faith, even though it was there. The object of his faith. Your faith has made you whole or well. The word indicates a permanent cure. When I was in fourth grade, I found out I needed glasses. I went from glasses to those rec specs. Remember when you played sports and you had that thing? Chris Sabo, Red's third baseman in the 90s. Anyway, I thought that was cool, but there was only one guy in the majors wearing those, and I discovered that I looked kind of silly with those on. I went to contacts, and then finally in college, I got LASIK eye surgery. And I can see whoever's sleeping in here. Just kidding. Once I got that, I didn't have to go back and have my eyes tuned up or a new pair of glasses or anything of that nature anymore. This was a permanent cure. And what does it say? That he went on following Jesus. How easy would it have been to come to the fair and pay the price and get on the ride and have a good time and then say, see you next year, Jesus, when you come back through. It says he followed him on his way. And tradition tells us this same guy, Bartimaeus, became a leader in the New Testament church once it was formed over the next couple of decades. Let me tell you what this comes down to. Bartimaeus' healing was an outer picture of an inner reality. Something is going on inside this guy because of his encounter with Jesus. The point is not that he was healed of his blindness, it's that Jesus identified with him in his suffering. He heard his cries, he stopped and tended to his need, and this, Jesus was able. I read this this week multiple times, and read through my sermon multiple times. And it was like God said to me repeatedly, do you really believe I'm able? Do you really believe I'm capable? Because here's what I do. Too oftentimes I'm guilty of asking the Lord for a kid's meal. When he wants me to have a five gallon bucket. And he wants to fill it up. I don't know what with. But he wants to pour his blessings on us. And I go to him and say, God can you give me the little 79 cent frosty? And he says, I want to give you the restaurant. But you got to come and ask. You got to come and Ask. And trust me to give, me, give you my best. There's an old song that says, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. Large petitions. For his grace and power are such that none, no one, can ever ask too much. So here's how I want to close today. Three things. Remember these. Number one, Jesus identifies with you in your suffering. And he understands perfectly what you are going through. Number two, because he identified with us, we can identify with others. Galatians 6.2 tells us as Christians to bear others' burdens. And then three, write down a list of the things you're praying for right now. And step back from that list and say, God, am I unintentionally... Or intentionally saying to you, I don't think you can handle the five-gallon bucket, so I'm going to ask for the kids' meal. Are we short-circuiting what God wants to do in our lives because we just simply don't have the faith to ask? This is a real good time for you to call out. This is a real good time for you not to say, Jesus, I'm kind of in need of your, your help call out over and over and over and say it again and again and again and forget who's around you and forget about your suit and tie and forget about your makeup and how good you look on the outside because inside, someone in this place this morning is desperate desperate people aren't worried about the crowds someone going over the waterfall don't care how foolish they look throw me the rope pull me out Jesus didn't throw you a rope. He jumped in with you in the deep end. And he's the only one that can lift you out. And I'm reading Ecclesiastes in my quiet time. I'll close by saying this. If you think there's anything else in this world, in this life, in a person, in a hobby, in a pursuit, in a pleasure, in a passion, in a pastime, in a dollar amount, they can fill you up in here, your life will be wasted don't waste your life if you're sitting in the dust this morning and something's broken in your heart in your life, in your marriage, in your finances in your health, call out to him don't whisper let's pray